Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin and once again we have gathered round the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order here we go starting with you James okay my fact this week is that there is only one person in the world who can predict the future using asparagus (laughs) for 2019 she has predicted extreme temperatures a recession in the US and an all time high in asparagus sales (laughs) (laughs) so when you say she can predict the future Uh, what's her success rate well it was really hot last week so 100% so far yeah. Um, yeah, actually, she claims to have a very high percentage, but these people always do, don't they? Okay, let's see some of the other things that she says. She says, um, this year, fears of Brexit will be unfounded. Yeah, maybe. Cool. <laughs> um, the trade war between China and the US will end, but there'll be a recession. England's women's football team will win the World Cup, fingers crossed. <laughs> Pick your audience, James. Pick your audience. You know, you know when you forget which country you're in. <laughs> James looked genuinely shocked when he started back. What's happened? Why do they hate women so much? (laughs) Yeah, not cool, Glasgow, not cool. The the hierarchy is nationalism, then feminism. Oh, God. Anyway, yeah, so there's this lady and she does that stuff and it's obviously bullshit. Well, she... (laughs) Well, hang on. Um... She, uh, she has a Twitter account. I went on it today, and one of the other predictions that she had is that she said at the Oscars this year, A Star is Born would have success, but British actors will also be in the mix. Uh, okay. So she was correct about Olivia Colman, wow. and A Star is Born, I think, won uh, the best song. Yeah. And she wrote a tweet just going, got it right. She's, nice. she's very proud. She said another great hit success rate for the old... <laughs> Uh, she, what did she call she, herself? She calls herself Mystic Veg. <laughs> yes. She's pretty strong. Yeah. She's an asparomancer. It's yes. called. Yes. You can just put mansa on the end of any word and it means you tell the future by it, can't you? And it's yeah. great. And they've been doing this. It was in the medieval period, I think, when they looked back over classical texts and they went, God, those old ancient Romans and Greeks told the future in weird-ass ways. Let's just call them all mansa-somethings. And so there are, there are so many mansies. There's tyromancy, uh, which is one of my favourites, which is telling the future by how cheese coagulates. And yeah, I read one version of this tyromancy, which is you get a cheese, you wait for it to go mouldy, and then you look at the mould, and that tells you the name of your husband. Oh. <laughs> I thought, it, yeah, I, I read something similar to that, which is it's the names of various suitors that you write onto the cheese, and the bit that the mould grows over is who you're going to... Oh. But if it grows over all the names, you're in for a lot of that- weddings. <laughs> How does it tell you the name of your... Did you say the name of your husband? Yeah, grew, actually, the, the, what? unusually for this podcast, what Dan said sounded a lot more sensible than what I said. <laughs> do you remember, it's exactly like when we used to peel apples. Did everyone used to do this and you peeled an apple and then you threw the peel in the air? And what is probably just what 
girls did in the, so. in the pre-feminist world. Um, and the shape that apple peel landed in was the first letter of your future husband's name. So everyone thought their future husband's name would start with S. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is quite a cool thing. There's a, the, there is a thing called alluromancy, uh, which is not about being alluring. It's about baking messages into little balls of dough. And this happened in ancient Greece. And the balls would be mixed up, and they'd have different messages on them, and then you would pick one. And that is basically a fortune cookie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The ancient Greeks have fortune cookies, is what I'm trying to say. That's really cool. Yeah. There's um, also gyromancy, um, which is the idea of you just start walking in a circle and keep walking, and around the perimeter of where you're walking, they leave letters of the alphabet, so you start spelling something out. And the idea is you keep going until you start stumbling into these letters, and then you keep going until it starts spelling something out, and then you keep going until <laughs> finally you spell out a consistent sentence. And if you don't do that, you just keep going until either you die or go mad. And that's, <laughs> that's what they used to do back in the day. Back in the day. Back yeah. in the day. Yeah. Back in the day. The old... All my notes just say, it's not BC with an actual day, it's just back in the day. I like this, um, I like this kind of telling the future from Iran. It's called Falgush. And it's the act of standing in a dark corner and listening to the conversations of passers-by. Oh, I didn't know there was a word for what I did. <laughs> That's great. In 2008, there was some research um, that found that you can make someone like certain foods if you convince them that they loved it the first time they tried it. So you say to them, when you were a kid, you had this and you absolutely loved it. And you can make it so that they used to hate something and now they really like wow. it. And that work was funded by the asparagus industry. <laughs> <laughs> there is, this, I didn't know this about asparagus. Asparagus can grow a centimetre an hour. Wow. No. What? It can. You that could is... watch that. You, if if you I had it. the day off work and I grew asparagus, I'd probably try and see it move. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, how it, is that how they do it? Do they just go boop in the space of 24 hours? Do we get them really quick? Yeah. Yeah. It grows fast. Mean? It literally, you just pour water on it and it goes boop in 24 yeah. hours. It doesn't it, make that noise. It probably, I, if you sped it up, it probably does make that noise. <laughs> That's incredible. I know. What grows that fast? The asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> and bamboo, as we know. Bamboo is what I was Do you know that yeah. all the asparagus that we eat is male? No. Yeah, good news for this woman-hating audience. <laughs> <laughs> Sales of asparagus have rocketed in Glasgow. <laughs> I don't know if that's a win. For, I think that's a win for women, isn't it? I don't think it you is. want to be yeah. eaten. So basically, the, the male stalks are a lot bigger and juicier than the female stalks, but that's because... <laughs> no, you're writing right your own jokes now, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the reason is... <laughs> <laughs> the reason is because the females, um, they create the berries, and so they need to use all their energy to do something actually useful, oh. whereas all the men have to do is just grow and be juicy. Right. Mm. <laughs> nice. Um, we're going to have to move on shortly to, oh. our, to our next fact. Um, I've just got um, one or two things. A, um, if anyone, by the way, is thinking of going to the Asparagus Festival, um, there is exciting stuff that goes on, and the stuff that goes on afterwards. They had a 10-year anniversary not too long ago, um, and you can do tours on buses. It's the Asparagus Bus Tours. Um, and, yeah, those are really fun. But actually, you've got to make sure to pick the right year, because a few years ago, they had to cancel the festival due to lack of asparagus. Um, there wasn't enough. There was, a, there was a flooding, and it kind of ruined the crops that were growing. Wow. Yeah. But um, 
it turns out that asparagus played a very important role in the formation of Darwin coming up with the theory of evolution. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was on. part of the evolution of the theory of evolution. What it was is Darwin kept wondering why things can be seen, you know, certain type of lettuces can be seen in places halfway across the world. How do they get there? How do they travel? What goes on? So he had a butler called Mr. Parslow, and Mr. Parslow and him filled a tub full of salt water to replicate the conditions of the ocean, and they put a bunch of seeds in to see if the seeds would would float and how long they would float for. So they had cabbage seeds, radish seeds, and so on. They lasted for 42 days, which was really impressive. However, asparagus seeds lasted for 85 days. They would float for that long. But the important bit was they then took the seed out of the seawater tub and buried it, and it grew into asparagus like lit boots straight away. <laughs> and so that meant that they could travel, that they could still germinate once they were in the soil. So then they put the seeds inside a bird and then they killed the bird, and they threw nice. it in the bathtub. What is the story? Oh, well. This is the worst bedtime story anyone's ever heard. Dan's child hasn't slept for three weeks. He's just doing this story. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, or shoot the bird with the asparagus seed in its tummy. Um, so it, then what they worked out was the bird, still you could take the seed out of the bird all those days later, and it would still grow. So the asparagus seed helped Darwin to realise it could travel via bird or via ocean. Wow. Do you know, can I just make sure that you know that has nothing to do with evolution? <laughs> what you just said. That is not about... You, do you think evolution is the proof that stuff can travel long distances? <laughs> That sounds like just an idle side project, the whole drowning a bird in the bath thing for Darwin. You let me tell that whole story? <laughs> he still did it. Can I, just another famous person who looked into asparagus was Benjamin Franklin, and he formed a theory based on the fact that it makes your wee smell. Although, does everyone have the... Because I, I don't think that asparagus makes your wee smell. Well, you, you, you are wrong, because it does. Well, no, no some people to... can detect it and some people can't. Mm. Well, it's, it's not, not my fault. Not many people <laughs> can't detect it. I think if you can't <gasps> detect it... I'm special. You have a thing. <laughs> yeah. You've got a thing called specific anosmia. So that's why you can't smell a particular smell. The asparagus wee smell. Yeah. yeah. But the asparagus does, other people claim it makes your wee smell. And Ben Franklin wrote a letter to the Royal Academy of Brussels using asparagus as an example of how what we eat can impact the smell of what we excrete. So he was saying, asparagus makes your wee smell kind of gross. Well, uh, how about we work on this? Because farts smell gross. And if we know that stuff we eat can make what comes out, can change the smell of stuff that comes out of us, why don't we work out what we need to eat in order for farts to smell nice? And it was actually, a, he thought it was a really big idea because he was saying it causes disease because well-bred people hold their farts in solely because they're going to stink the place out if they let one rip. And so he said, if we could get a pill or something we could feed people to make your farts smell like perfume, ah. then people would actually want to do it. And that's evolution. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that the composer Haydn's wife cared so little about her husband's work that she used to tear up his scores to use as hair curlers and pastry underlays. Wow. So crazy. And was this sort of before 
uh, he sold them to anyone, or before he, or was it just things it that he just, used? It was just throughout his life. So actually, he was very. He wrote a lot, uh, and she just found them lying around, and she knew nothing about music and did not care. Haydn once said, "It makes not a blind bit of difference to my wife whether I'm a musician or a cobbler." Uh, and so she'd mm. find them, and she'd be like, "Oh, that looks handy. I'll put a pie on that." Yeah. Well, I mean, he did. He wrote 108 symphonies, 20 operas, 47 sonatas, 68 quartets, 178 trios, 14 masses, and six oratorios. So. I mean, that's a lot of paper. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it? It's recycling. It's, it's recycling. recycling. Yeah. I, she didn't like him very much either. Oh, that uh, is true. I yeah. think she was doing it deliberately. They had a very sad marriage. Um, so he basically, he fell in love when he was very young, uh, Joseph Haydn, with a woman called Teresa. And she couldn't marry him. And so her father said, do you want to marry her older sister, who's this really unpleasant woman called <laughs> Maria Anna? And he felt bad. So he was like, okay, cool, I'll, I'll marry her. And said, that sounds great. And apparently she had a very domineering and unfriendly character. Uh, she used to spend all of his money very freely, so he went to great lengths to hide his income so she wouldn't know about it. Um, and when she died, he was completely indifferent, apparently. Wow. Oh. They lived apart, didn't they, for... Towards the end, they did, yeah. yeah. I thought it was for 40 years. Well, the last 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> he was housed... Uh, he had a job where he was housed at uh, this prince's castle where she did live with him quite a lot of the time. Oh, right, okay. But then, yeah, towards the end, he was in London and she sent him a letter saying... She used to send him letters saying things like, by the way, if you die tomorrow, there's no money to bury you. Uh, really nice love letters like that when he was away and she wrote him a letter in London saying I really need money because you're going to die soon and I need a house to live in as a widow so can you please buy me one and he did I read with the letters um, that it got to the point where they were communicating just by sending each other's letters but Haydn never opened the letters that she sent and he was convinced that she didn't either so they were just sending each other these things that remained completely <laughs> unopened. No idea what was being said. Wow. Yeah, no communication. Wow. Yeah, pretty ha- crazy. Haydn was very influential. He's not very well-known these days, I think, unless you're a classical music fan. He's less well-known than, like, Beethoven and Mozart. I think, yeah, exactly, right? yeah. But he, yeah. Was, he was great friends with Mozart um, for a lot of his life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I really like... I've just been reading a tiny bit about Haydn's music. So he wrote... His, his string quartet in E-flat is known as The Joke... Because he put basically he practical jokes in this string quartet because it's got lots of false endings to catch the audience out. That's quite cool, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And he wrote something called the Surprise Symphony, which is <laughs> he re- used to just turn up at people's houses and play that, <laughs> didn't he? It's really really quiet apart from one very loud bit, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the surprise. And then it it never gets referred to again. It doesn't get repeated as a motif. It's just really really quiet all the way through. Apart from one bit, he goes whoa. <laughs> I like there's also one he wrote which is called The Palindrome which starts one way and then it just goes back oh. on itself as a, as a musical piece. Yeah, cool. But the, the first one, the joke is amazing because it was, he would literally, the piece would finish and the audience would go and then he would play again <laughs> and the whole thing just has the audience go uh, to, to applaud. He was, like, he was like Les Dawson of his day, wasn't he? <laughs> he was. He was actually, he was a prankster. What was that? <laughs> I can't remember any of Les Dawson's. I've got to say, that is not exactly a 2019 reference. No, <laughs> great reference. <laughs> That is a problem. Um, He got kicked out of his choir when he was very young because he chopped off one of the choir boy's pigtails. 
Wow. Uh, just as a prank, just as a fun prank. He was very good-natured, apparently. So he was known as Papa Haydn. And, yeah, as you say, he was best friends with Mozart. There's a really moving moment when he was called to move to London when he was about 60 by that point, and he suddenly got this invitation. And Mozart walked into the coaching station to say goodbye. And then they had a moment where uh, Mozart said, I suppose this is the last time we'll see each other in this life. Because uh, Haydn's, you know, in those days that was getting on a bit. And Haydn said, Oh, don't you worry about me. I'm feeling pretty strong. Uh, but then actually, Mozart obviously died at the age of 35 oh. then that year. Oh. So he I was thought you were going to say that Haydn got into the coach and drove off and then he came back a minute later with a surprise. <laughs> it wasn't the last time we'll see each other. I'm here. Have you heard, Did you guys read about his boss, Haydn's boss? No. no. That's okay. He spent. 30 years working for a royal house because that was how you made your living as a musician you you didn't have uh, you know you didn't have really big mass concerts you had a private patron so his boss was Prince Paul Anton Esterhazy or Esterhazy Esterhauser Esterhauser sorry and he had total control basically of Haydn's life so he could dictate how he dressed uh, Haydn wasn't automatically allowed to send anybody new works he had to they, submit them all to his highness and um, he was partly paid in semolina beef, cabbages and lard <laughs> during his work. He wasn't allowed to eat and drink with the other musicians in case they stopped respecting him because he, he was the boss. And every morning and afternoon he had to go to the prince and say, would you like to hear a concert or an opera tonight? And if the prince said yes, he had to go and prepare one. Wow. Yeah. Mm, yeah. He did insist on being paid partly in wine as well, mm. which is uh, along with that other nasty stuff. But he did, he lived in this place and... Uh, Prince Esterhazy had this weird castle that he built, like a fantasy castle, which sounds awful, in this big swamp where they had to spend about 10 months of the year. And he built this huge opera house where Haydn had to compose these operas that burned down and he immediately built a new one. Um, and Haydn was still very popular there and he had this team of musicians around him and they all did indeed respect him a lot to the extent that they, the musicians used to go to the tavern, which also the prince built on the land. And they used to get really pissed and they weren't allowed their wives there, so everyone was getting a bit antsy uh, at month number nine and there was a moment where the cellist punched an oboist in the face when they got a bit pissed and he and the trombonist went it's actually a really serious incident uh, so <laughs> it's really unappreciated that trombone moment um, he punched him in the face and he lost an eye because he was wearing this Ooh, ring that oh, knocked now his I feel bad <laughs> Um, he was missing an eye and he was a bit pissed off but Haydn stepped in and managed to make them settle it amicably so this guy has removed the eye of his co-worker and they worked together happily for another seven years that's great and then he took the other eye and that was too far (laughs) that was not funny we should say, should we say what happened to Haydn after he died? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think we should. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was very bizarre. So he died, finally, quite old. Um, and then as soon as he died, his head was stolen. And it was stolen by a guy he knew, actually, whose marriage he'd helped to set up. So it was kind of a slap in the face. This guy called Rosenbaum, who was very interested in phrenology, which was the study of skulls and what that meant about your intelligence. And so he stole his head with his mate. Um, and it used to be displayed in his mate's house in this little box, which had a little glass window and it sat on a cushion and imagine going to your friend's house and they said oh do you should see something really cool and then you just got the the dead head of your former mate sitting in a display case yeah they didn't know about it until his patron who was a new prince by this time called nicholas he decided you know the 
the burial we gave Haydn, it wasn't good enough. He needs a more dignified burial place. So they wanted to reinter him somewhere grander. And they dug him up and they found his head was missing. And it was incredibly <laughs> upsetting. So the authorities, you know, prompted by the prince, they searched the home of Rosenbaum and um, he gave them a, a different skull. I don't know where he got that one from. <laughs> he the, collected skulls. And then, and then they, they, they got wise to it because they looked at the skull they'd be given and he said, this is a young man's skull. It's not, Haydn was very old when he died. And he said, all right, you got me. Uh, here's Haydn's skull. And he gave him another fake skull. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, were, there are now three skulls in circulation, <laughs> one of which is Haydn. Do you know how they hid Haydn's skull? No. It's very cool. So they had Haydn's skull in the house and they hid it inside the mattress uh, and then he, Rosenbaum, made his wife lie on the mattress and pretend to be menstruating. And everyone searching the house was too afraid to go near her and so they didn't find the skull. <laughs> Quick, pretend to be menstruating. <laughs> I, I know that's not what happens. I was... <laughs> uh, you're, you're confusing menstruating with being on a ghost train, I think. <laughs> I like the way that these guys looking for Haydn are basically playing hide and seek. Oh! <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, we need to move on. Did we get to the other story? We did. Okay, let's move on. It's time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that to stop people stealing American road signs with the number 69 on them, Washington State has replaced many of them with signs that now read 68.9. <laughs> I was their big plan. So this is a big problem in America. This is a thing called mile markers. So when you're driving, it tells you either how many miles you have to get to somewhere or how many are left. And, and these keep getting stolen. And it's not just 69 that gets stolen. Um, there is also the 420. And f- yeah. 420 is a... Right, the police have been notified of everyone who just did that. <laughs> yeah, so 420 is a, is a drug reference um, for the 20th of April. Uh, it's, it's International Cam- Cannabis Day, I believe it is, or Smoker's Day, yeah. Okay. Um, so those have been replaced as well. So those are now four, 419.9. Right. Um, and this, this is a, this is a big a, problem yeah. in America because they uh, they've had 200 stolen over the last, since about two, 2012. They do cost a lot. There's a whole Wikipedia page on street sign theft. Um, so, for instance, there's a big list of them. Um, Richard Bong State's Recreation Area keep having their um, signs stolen because it has the word bong in there. Um, Ragged Ass Road in Yellowknife. Uh, they had to keep changing their signs. Uh, Butthole Road in England. Um, they had to keep losing that. They eventually renamed it to Archer's Way. So this is happening all over the world in hilariously named places. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you guys know about a place called Burgholtz in the US? Nope. No. Uh, no, you wouldn't because it's made up. But it, this is a place... Okay. This is a pair of men called Mika and Mont who have been trying to redesign America's road signs and they finally confirmed that they'd redesigned them recently. And they've invented a fictional town called Burgholtz, uh, B-R-G-A-U-L-T-S, because it involves some of the hardest letters to sign. And oh. that's all those vowels, apparently. They look really blurry. They fill in a bit when you're far away. The G, always difficult. Why does a G look completely different types than it does written? 
And so they have that as their archetypal... <laughs> Amazing observational comedy. <laughs> it's like Peter Kay was in the room. Wait till you find out about A. <laughs> it's only G. I'm stuck on G. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and they, they would do it by... They'd make signs saying burgles, and then they'd lean them against fences, and then they'd, like, walk up a hill or walk 500 metres away, and then they'd see how clearly they could see them compared to our normal signposts. And in this manner, they've convinced America now to change all of its road sign fonts, and they did that in 2000. Oh, but there's there's a lot of controversy about this. Yeah. So the the original American font on all American roads was called Highway Gothic. That was mm. the name, which is pretty cool. Wow. And then their font is called Clearview. Yeah. And there were all these studies saying it was much clearer to read, Clearview. And um, you could see it, uh, if you were driving at night and you saw a sign that was in Clearview, you could read it 74 feet further away than Highway Gothic. Wow. So that gives you a couple more seconds, let's say, of reaction time, so it will stop you having a crash, perhaps. And that could actually save lives. You know, more or fewer people could die on the Mm -hmm. roads, depending on whether you choose Clearview or Highway Gothic. But there have now been more studies saying that Highway Gothic is better... So Clearview has just had its approval removed. I think no this year, way. This year uh, it's had its approval put on hold. The highway gothic factions have come out. Right. They've beaten <laughs> it down. Yeah. But it's all in caps lock, highway gothic. It's so weird in America. They have all their signs in capitals, which is terrible for signage because capitals, you can't distinguish shapes. It just looks like one big rectangle. So when you're far away, uh, you can't tell as much. Whereas on our signs here then, you know, you see the little tails of the G or the Y or the other tailed letters. You all know what they are. G, Y, P. P P is another good one and Q, of course. What, what was that? J. She's right. J. right. Anyway. Maybe okay. we should take this. No, no, I think we're on the brink of something. No, sorry. No. So, oh, I found an effect. Um... Mice make signposts in the in their fields, and they make them out of leaves and twigs so they don't get lost. Ah, oh, do they? Do they? <laughs> what font are they using? And is it caps lock? <laughs> they, this this is wood wood mice. Um, they they move objects like a leaf or a twig to mark a site that interests them, and they regularly, when they're exploring around it, they rear up on their hind legs and they look to make sure they can still see their little street sign before they explore. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, one place which has problems with losing signs is um, Thin Glass in North Dublin. And that is because that is where Bono was born. And so a lot uh-huh. of U2 fans go and steal the road sign from his road. So literally, the streets have no name. <laughs> <laughs> is that... It doesn't sound... It sounds like I made it all up just for the punchline. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it really is true. It really is true. <laughs> They were first designed for cyclists, road signs, in the 19th century, to warning road signs. But I want to test you guys, because there was a study done recently that showed that most people can't identify most road signs now. And even, actually, this is going to be hard, because you've probably read it, but there are three basic shapes. I know one. So the circle, where it's like a red circle with a white band in the middle of it, Yeah. that means shortcut. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, there are three types of road signs. There's a circle, the triangle, and the rectangle. Oh, yeah. Does anyone know the difference between what those things mean? Is it the circle? Was it circle, triangle, and... Triangle, triangle is warning. Yeah. And circle is... Circle is banning. Do this now. Whatever, you, whatever it says, you must bloody well do it. And then the square is... There's a nice castle over there. Uh, yeah. 
Okay, that's sort of... One is very wrong, so I hope you're joking. The circle is absolutely don't do it. Uh, please don't. But there are, people don't understand that. So anything in a red circle means this is banned. But I think it doesn't have a cross through it. No one realises. So there was this survey done that said, what does a sign mean that has a red circle and it shows... It's known as the uh, low-flying motorbike sign, I think, because it shows a car mm. and then on top of it, a little motorbike. So that means no vehicles. It means no vehicles. Most people who did this survey said, well, it means only cars and motorbikes are allowed. <laughs> so- yeah. People have no idea. That's the problem. In Italy, um, there's a town that has started... They have a big problem in this one town where there's a lot of prostitutes on the side of the road and they're trying to not encourage people to stop and and do business with them. So they created signs, again, with a pictogram on it of what was a prostitute, and it says underneath it, um, prostitutes. But most people didn't know if it was sort of saying... Oh, no. They actually increased traffic because most people were slowing down. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that flies like to date the same sort of flies as their fly friends. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where to start with that. Yeah. Do you mean fly friends? Oh, they're really cool friends. No, I just <laughs> mean really the friends who are flies. Oh, right, yeah. So this is really cool. It's all about how flies choose uh, which other flies to court. So scientists, they painted a load of male fruit flies different colours, okay? They painted some uh, pink and some green. And they set up a date between one female and the and two males, one pink and one green. And then behind some glass, they had another female fly watching this date. This We're sounds gonna... like a Channel 5 show, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, and and so the female inside chose one of the males she chose pink or green to mate with and then the observer female flies who've been watching this whole rigmarole were given the chance a day later which is quite a long time in fly years that's like you know three years later they get the chance for a date of their own and when they were given the chance they almost always picked the colour that the female the day before had chosen so they remembered this and, wow. you know, even when they were presented with two male flies that were apparently hideous. Yeah, um, I mean, because they probably, in real life, don't see many flies painted pink and green, do they? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Be it's very strange. Yeah. And so what is the, you know, what does this tell us about flies? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Okay, well, I thought you did, and that's why I asked you. (laughs) So the idea is that because the flies are passing on behavioural traits between each other, they might have some kind of um, culture. As in, a culture is where someone does something and then they kind of talk everyone else into doing it and then you become kind of, everyone goes to Glastonbury. Mm -hmm. Right. They then got female observers, again, behind the glass, to watch a fly orgy between lots of males and lots of females. And These if- flies really lucked out, didn't they? They must have been bragging to their friends. I've been involved in this study. You have no idea. I never need to pay for porn again. <laughs> Just an interesting thing about fly sex, because if they're having this big orgy, the problem is, is um, flies have sex while they're flying. So they, flies, certain flies have uh, special kind of genitalia, gonads, that just have to just move around to wherever the female fly is flying. Wow. Yeah, so if she banks left and he's like, well, I've got to go, his gonads can go whoop and just <laughs> they can go from anywhere from 90 to 360 degrees just around oh. to just be making sure that the sex continues while all this very, um, you know, flying stuff is, is going on. 
That's very cool. Yeah. Because it's hard to seduce the woman as a male fruit fly, this is, that you're talking about. But um, they sing songs, so the males chase the females and then they will extend just one wing. So they'll put, like, put one arm out and they vibrate it and it produces a song. And the song has two modes. So there's just like two types of sound they can make. And you have to amplify it by more than a million times to hear it with human ears. But we've done that, obviously, because scientists are bored. So they've got the... The sign and the pulse, and the sign sounds like the whine of an approaching mosquito, apparently, and then the pulse sounds like a cat's purr. So if you're being seduced by a fly, it's a combination of a buzzing mosquito and a purring cat. But then, once the male, once the female has accepted the male, the male licks the female for two minutes, and then they mate for about 20 minutes. And th- some scientists, who I think were really bored, uh, they scrambled a fruit fly's courtship neurons in its brain... So that they tried to copulate, lick, and play the love song all at the same time. <laughs> and what w- would normally take four, a four-minute, quite delicate mating process was reduced to ten seconds. <laughs> and We've found- all been there. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your green friend? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fruit flies. Oh, like a proven one, you mean? A proven one. Flyagra. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and now they've got their PR guy, which is good. He's going to need a job after tonight. Um, they have the only aphrodisiac that scientists have ever proved exists is uh, that actually makes you want to have sex. Only works on fruit flies. And it's the scent of rotting fruit. So if they smell rotting fruit, that actually turns on their bits of their brain pathways that are the courtship initiating. So they scent rotting fruit and they immediately want to have a shag. And that is useful, I think, because rotting fruit is a good place to lay eggs as a woman. So if a man fancies you when you're near rotting fruit, that's handy because then you can put your, put your babies in fruit. Um, speaking of the chemicals, um, if you have a fly that falls into your glass of wine, uh, one single fly is enough to ruin the whole glass of wine, okay? But only if it's a female fly. And it's because it's the pheromones in the fly that cause the wine to f- taste a bit skunky. Mm. If the males go in, actually, it will still taste the same. And they tested this by um, getting the pheromones out of the flies and then putting it into some wine and getting people to taste it. And they found that um, just, ten, just one nanogram of a pheromone was enough for a small glass of wine for them to be able to taste the difference. Wow. One nanogram, which is like, I don't know, I think it's like a thousandth of a millionth of a gram or something like that. In a small glass of wine? In a small glass of wine, Sorry, yeah. hang on. Uh, Anna, a small glass of wine <laughs> is something that... Uh... <laughs> it's what you've got left. <laughs> Mine's become small. It always goes through the small phase. So I worked out what the equivalent of this is, and it's worth, it's the equivalent of putting one pedal bin's worth of Ribena into Loch Ness (laughs) and the whole lake tasting of blackcurrant. Wow. That's great. These people must be wine snobs who are tasting that one tiny nanogram of female pheromone. I think it adds to the flavour of anything. (laughs) (laughs) I stirred flies into this before I came on. There was a study on flies' response to carbonated beverages and uh, their attraction to carbon dioxide, and the Sky report about it was headlined, Why do flies suddenly appear every time you open a beer? <laughs> <laughs> <That's> nice. <laughs> um, we're going to have to wrap up soon. Um, so before we do, have you guys got... Uh, I can tell you about dung beetle sex. Yeah, please. Yeah. 
Ooh. <laughs> that is an unbelievably niche porn subject, isn't it? What do they do? You need to delete your history immediately, whoever that was. Um, no, what's interesting about them is that they get STDs, um, but actually it's a good thing for them. It's, if you're um, a dung beetle and you get an STD, STD, this is really good for you because they get this kind of nematode worm and it helps to get the right kind of bacteria. It eats all the bad bacteria in their body, which means a good bacteria can come in and it means that then they can eat their food properly. It's like if you have sex with someone and feed them yakult at the same time. Wow. Another niche kind of porn <laughs> reference. <laughs> With that bit of advice, so let's wrap it up, I reckon. Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Or you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have all of our upcoming tour dates for the tour that we're currently on and future tours, uh, all of our previous episodes. Uh, thank you so much. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye.